Well, good morning and happy new year to everybody here at the Lake Forest campus. Also, those of you at the 01 Crossroads and Highland Park, I'm excited for the opportunity to begin the new year with you today. Hope you had a good Christmas. Hope you got some things that you wanted for Christmas. Uh, just in the last couple of days, I got a bonus Christmas gift. It's not one I asked for. I don't even know why I'm getting it, uh, but it's a gift from Apple. And, and every time I turn on my phone now, I'm getting sort of news updates right there on the home screen. And, uh, you know, most of it just comes and goes. But one of them caught my attention yesterday afternoon, and it's an article that said, choose flourish as your word for 2017. And the article goes on to talk about the, the power of sort of claiming this word flourish for growing in all kinds of ways through the year. And it caught my attention because of the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. I think the scriptures give us a word that's right at the heart of Christianity. It's right at the heart of what the Bible is calling people to from the Old Testament right into the New Testament. It's right at the heart of what Jesus Christ has done for you and me. And we're going to take a look at that word from Galatians chapter 5. And so if you have a Bible uh, on your phone or, or a print copy of the Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. We're going to be reading from the first several verses of Galatians chapter 5. But before we read it, I want to sort of get us into uh, the idea of this letter because we're jumping right into the latter portion of a letter that the early missionary Paul wrote to believers in Jesus, followers of Jesus that lived in Galatia, uh, which is a, an area that's in the present day Turkey. Uh, and he's writing to this group of believers about a particular um, situation as they were growing in their faith. And in the fourth chapter of Galatians, Paul alludes to a situation in the Old Testament with Abraham. Now, Abraham was the the patriarch of the Jewish faith and then ultimately the Christian faith. And God had come to Abraham, who was very old, and he had no children. His wife, Sarah, was barren. And God made a promise to Abraham that he would grow a people that would be God's people, that that would be his plan of salvation for the world through Abraham's son. Of course, trouble was Abraham was very old and he had no child. His wife was barren. But Abraham believed God. He believed that God would fulfill his promise, and so he waited for a son. But the trouble was, no son came. And and they began to get a little bit restless, Abraham and Sarah did. And Sarah had this idea, you know what, God has made you a promise to grow a people from your son. But of course, we're childless. Here's what we need to do. We need to help God fulfill his promise. Why don't you have a child with one of my servants, Hagar? And, And that way, that must be how God can fulfill his promise if we have a child. So they did. child's name was Ishmael. Well, not too long after that, sure enough, Sarah, even though she was old, she was in her 90s, she conceived. And they bore a son named Isaac. And of course, Isaac was the child of the promise. But they had to wait on that child. And so this situation arose. It was a little bit sticky for Abraham because there were these two children. There was Ishmael and there was Isaac. And in the fourth chapter of Galatians, this missionary, Paul, alludes to this story and he uses Ishmael and Isaac as symbols of two different ways of relating to God. Ishmael represented sort of working for righteousness, doing it our own way, trying to accomplish a standing before God in our own strength, much the same way that Abraham and Sarah took it upon themselves to have this child. And he uses Isaac as a symbol of waiting for God to accomplish his promises. 
And so there are some words that are attached to this. Ishmael uh, was part of what was called the circumcision, which was a a symbol of uh, the law that God had given to his people that they would keep in order to be righteous before him. And uncircumcision was this idea of grace and not having to be under the thumb of the law that was in the Old Testament. So there were these categories that Paul was describing that alluded to the Old Testament that sets up what he's going to talk about in Galatians chapter 5. It sets up a problem that even though Jesus Christ has come to give us freedom to have a relationship with God and a right standing before him, ever since the beginning, ever since God's promise to Abraham, there has been this tension, there's been this pull away from the freedom that Jesus Christ wants us to have. And Paul makes the point that it was the same in the Old Testament as it is today for you and me. There's this struggle that we have to live in this word, freedom. But he has something to say about that in chapter 5. And so I want to invite you to join me in 2017 in claiming this word, freedom. And let's see how Paul unpacks this idea. Beginning in Galatians 5 and verse 1. He says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus... Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Then jump down to verse 13. For you were called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I want to make two points this morning from this passage and the first is this we have to fight for freedom we do we have to fight for freedom because of this tension that was set up between Ishmael and Isaac this pull of slavery away from freedom you and I today have to fight to live in the freedom that Jesus Christ has given to us and it shows up right at the beginning there in verse 1 he says for freedom Christ has set us free stand firm Therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. These two commands, stand firm and do not submit, are active words. They're active commands that tell us we've got to do something. It's going to take some energy and some intentionality not to fall back into old ways of thinking. That we would be working to accomplish things for ourselves. So he says, stand firm. Don't go back to old ways of thinking. And he says, do not submit again to a yoke of of slavery. Now remember, call to mind this idea of, of Ishmael. And it's this idea that, that we work to accomplish what God has promised. And that is talked about as a form of slavery. And we'll get into a little bit more of, of what this idea is uh, in just a second. But he says, do not submit again to this yoke of slavery. And it's this idea that every one of us starts there. It's something that we would revert back to. And Paul is assuming that every one of us began 
in this form of slavery. And we've got to learn to live in the freedom that Jesus Christ offers to us. So what's this idea of a yoke of slavery? Well, um, if, if you're like me, you didn't grow up on a farm, you might not know what this yoke is. But a yoke is, is the, the contraption that goes around the neck of an ox that would pull a plow, that sort of attaches him to the plow so that he would pull the farmer through the land. And that, oak, that, that ox is not getting out of the yoke. It, it attaches itself to him and, and he does his job of pulling the plow. And that's, that's what a yoke of slavery is. And so Paul is describing the situation where we have this attachment, this yoke of slavery on our backs that we are called to be free from, but we keep getting pulled back into it. And we've got to exercise some effort to stand firm so that we don't fall back into that yoke of slavery. And and I'm going to argue that the yoke of slavery he's talking about is working for righteousness. It's working for righteousness before God. Now, what is righteousness? Righteousness is an acceptable standing before God. It's it's a key word all throughout the, the Bible where the righteous are those whom God accepts. The unrighteous are those whom God judges. And in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the idea is that we would have righteousness before God. That is an acceptable standing based on moral perfection. And so the yoke of slavery that Paul is talking about is that somehow we have this idea that we could work our way to a right standing before God, are working our way into righteousness in much the same way that Abraham and Sarah tried to work their way into God's promise by going outside of his plan to have that child, Ishmael. Now, that's a lot of theology. That's a lot of Bible context. How does that look in our lives? And I want to suggest that there are three questions that... that many or all of us have to some extent that describe this wrestling match with slavery in our context. And the first is this, when we are working our way for righteousness, we are a slave to this question, will God let me into heaven when I die? That may be the question that you have on your mind this morning. It's certainly a question I had on my mind for many years. It's a question that that hopefully all of us come to to wrestle with seriously. When I die, will God let me in to heaven? Many of us are greatly concerned with our standing before God, and rightly so. But there's a problem if we understand anything about what the Bible says about righteousness is we know that we're not morally perfect. We look at our lives, our past, our present the prospect of our future, and we know that we fall short. And so what we tend to do is we come up with lesser righteousnesses that we think surely will be acceptable to God. So we we come up with things like, I've done more good than bad in my life. Or I've never done anything really bad, like murder somebody, or or, I'm really sincere. And, And we hope... And we work toward accomplishing these kinds of standards so that when we stand before God, we will be accepted. And we claim that as our righteousness. And it sort of feels like a freedom, doesn't it? Because we have the freedom to sort of come up with the idea of righteousness on our own. Trouble is, it's a false freedom because it's not the standard that God has given to be acceptable before him. 
and we can never, ever rest. We're always working to be acceptable before God. You may know exactly what I'm talking about. You just can't get away from this question. Will God let me into heaven when I die? Some of you may be here this morning at the beginning of 2017 because you go, I, I got to get to work on some things if I'm going to be acceptable to God when I die. And that's a form of slavery. We're sort of a slave to this question that never gets resolved when we're trying to work our way toward righteousness before God. But the freedom the Bible talks about, the freedom that's talked about in Galatians chapter 5, can put our minds and hearts to rest over this question. It's a freedom that will break that chain of always worrying about, will God let me into heaven when I die? If that's your question, wouldn't you like that freedom? I think there's another question that describes this slavery to working for righteousness that we find. And it's this. Will God be proud of what I've done with my life? Will God be proud of what I've done with my life? So some of us have have resolved the question of will God let me into heaven when I die because we've placed our faith and trust in Jesus. We've recognized I could never be righteous. I could never be morally perfect. Only Jesus is righteous. And he died on the cross for my unrighteousness so that I might have his righteousness and be acceptable before God. We believe that. We've repented of our sins. We've asked for forgiveness and we're seeking to be a follower of Jesus. And yet we still wrestle with this other question. Will God be proud of what I've done with my life? And if we're trying to work to improve our standing before God, somehow improve our righteousness before him, that's an enslaving question. And I want to be real transparent with you. This is the question that that I struggled with for many, many years. It's a question that, that held me in bondage. And I'll tell you a little bit of my story on this. So for many years, I, I looked to my doctrine as a way to show my righteousness before God. No, I wouldn't have said that. I wouldn't have articulated that. But I wrestled with this question. Will God be proud of me when I die? And a way to try to make God proud of me when I stand before him one day is to get really deep into biblical doctrine. And so I had this sort of core belief in my spirit that if I had biblically precise theology and, and really weighty ideas and beliefs that I could articulate, then somehow I could stand before God at the end of my life and he would be impressed with how much I knew about God. Trouble is, I wasn't so concerned about cultivating a personal relationship with God through prayer. I wasn't so concerned with being the the tool that God might use to meet the needs of someone else in my life because I believed a sovereign God could meet every need without my prayer and that he could meet everyone's practical need without my personal engagement. Of course, I did some of those things, but what I really put the weight of that question on is, how much my doctrine reflected how big and great and grand God is. And those are good things to be sure. I don't want to poo-poo doctrine. But that's not what makes God pleased. And it was this form of slavery. 
in my life that sort of shifted into this other way that I tried to improve my standing before God. And that was with a position of influence. And I thought, if I come to the end of my life and I've had a position of significant influence on others around me or, or in the church or in the world, then, then I could stand before God and he would be proud of what I've done with my life. And so that feels like a certain kind of freedom. Because both with doctrine and with, with a position, those are things that I could work for and I could achieve. And there were things that appealed to me. I love ideas. I love academics. I love communication of ideas. And so I could live in this space and I could work and I could achieve some level of righteousness in the work that I was doing. But the trouble is it was a false freedom. Because I could always kind of come up with somebody who could articulate their doctrine better than I could articulate mine. I could always see someone else that was in a position of greater influence than I was in and I would feel like I never measure up. I've got to work harder. I've got to keep working to improve that standing before God. Because I'm stuck in this question, will God be proud of me when I die? The freedom the Bible talks about can set us free from the slavery to that question of always worrying about whether God will be pleased with us when we die. If that's your question, wouldn't you like that freedom? There's a third question that I think describes the slavery that we often wrestle with. And, and it's this idea that, that some of us are not as concerned about what God thinks of us as we are with what other people think of us. And this question is, will someone else be impressed with what I've done with my life? And, and it may be because we've sort of taken for granted our standing before God because, after all, we're following after Jesus and we're believing uh, by faith that he has saved us from our sins. So we're, we've sort of resolved that question of our standing before God. But practically speaking, we're all tied up in knots about what someone else thinks of us will someone else be impressed with what I've done or with what I'm doing with my life I have a friend uh, who is a uh, musician and a worship leader he's got skills he's got heart he, he really does a great job of leading worship but he really has to work at it now his wife is an amazingly talented musician and a very natural and charismatic leader. She can sight-read complicated music just sitting down and playing it. She can lead with ease and confidence that just pulls people in to worship. And one day my friend confided in me how much he struggles with trying to win the approval of his wife. He looked at his own talent and he looked at hers and he said, man, I just, I look at her and I go, I, I, got, I got to hold a candle to her talents. I'm always working to try to win her approval. And then he said something to me that has stuck with me for many years and it's really helped me in a lot of different ways. He says, when I really get down about it, I get discouraged. I have to tell myself, my wife's approval is not my righteousness. My wife's approval is not my righteousness. Now, not only was he a competent and gifted worship leader. He was quite a good theologian and he made quite a theological statement there because what he was recognizing was that in his own life, he had elevated this desire for approval from his own wife above his relationship with God. And so it, it tied him up in knots. It, it, it enslaved him trying to work for some kind of 
righteousness or acceptable standing before his wife. As if it was the all-important question of, will God accept me when I stand before him? And I think to some extent, that's all of our question at one time or another. Whether it's a spouse, whether it's a family member, whether it's a boss or co-worker, or whether it's just this general sense of, is the world impressed with what I'm doing with my life? We sort of claim that as our righteousness. And when we're always working for that kind of acceptable standing before someone else, we're enslaved to this question, will someone else be impressed with what I'm doing with my life? But the freedom the Bible talks about can deliver us from that slavery of always worrying about what someone else will think about us. If that's your question, wouldn't you like that freedom? We have to fight for the freedom of working for righteousness. How do we do that? I believe the answer is embedded in this passage that we read from Galatians chapter 5. And it's the second point I want to make. We have to surrender to the freedom of waiting for righteousness. Now remember, that context of Abraham and Sarah, how they did not wait. They had the child Ishmael who represented slavery, working for righteousness. But when they waited, God did deliver on his promise. Give the child Isaac who represented all that God would do to accomplish righteousness for those who wait. And we see it in the middle of this passage. I love this verse. This verse is the reason that we're looking at this passage today. It's verse five. It's right in the middle of Paul's argument here. And he says this, for through the spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. There are three elements that he highlights in this short sentence that help us with this idea of what does it mean to wait for righteousness rather than work for righteousness. If, if working for righteousness is slavery in our lives, we're enslaved to these questions, what does it mean to live in the freedom of waiting for righteousness? And the first element is the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. He says, through the Spirit, by faith, We ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. In John chapter 3, one of the religious leaders named Nicodemus came to Jesus. And Jesus told him that if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Nicodemus had no idea what Jesus was talking about. He said, how can you enter into your mother's womb and be born again? But then Jesus Revealed to him. He wasn't talking about physical birth. He was talking about spiritual birth. And Nicodemus really struggled with this because he just didn't have spiritual eyes to see spiritual things. And Jesus went on to teach him about the spirit. And and he struggled with this, Nicodemus did. Because of what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. It tells us that the natural person doesn't accept the things of the spirit of God. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Nicodemus just didn't grasp spiritual things and wasn't able to receive what Jesus was teaching. But the good news 
If you're like Nicodemus and spiritual things, listening to the Spirit is a foreign language to you. The good news is what we find in Acts 2.38. It says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you're here this morning and that question that's nagging on you is, will God let me into heaven when I die? There's no working for righteousness that you could ever do to improve your standing before God. But waiting for righteousness begins with receiving the Holy Spirit. And if you will repent today of your sins, the unrighteousness that's in your life, recognize it's never going to be enough. Trust in Jesus who died on the cross for your sins to give you his righteousness. Then the scriptures say you will receive the Spirit. And that's the first element in obtaining this righteousness that God wants you to have when you stand before him one day. Listening to the Spirit also involves this idea of disciplining ourselves to hear from him in our lives. In 1 Kings chapter 19, we see the prophet Elijah at a point in his life that is very low. God did a lot of amazing things through Elijah, but at this moment, Elijah was ready to die. He asked the Lord to take him. He was at a very low point. And God said, I'm going to come and I'm going to speak to you, Elijah. And he sent Elijah up onto a mountain to wait for the voice of the Lord. And while he was waiting, a great wind came. A wind so strong that it was blowing rocks off the side of this mountain. But the scriptures tell us God was not in the wind. And then an earthquake came, but God was not in the earthquake. And then a fire rose up, but God was not in the fire. Finally, a low whisper came and we're told God's spirit was in the whisper. And Elijah heard it and Elijah responded. We need to learn to listen to the spirit. Now the challenge is the spirit's not loud. The spirit is not demanding. The spirit is that whisper that when we make space, we learn to hear from him. And so if we're going to claim this word freedom for 2017, I want to invite you to join me in freedom resolution number one. And that is make space to listen to the spirit. Don't be a slave to your schedule. Don't be a slave to the pressures of life. Live in the freedom of making space. And this can be a very practical thing in your day daily to stop, to be silent before the Lord, to meditate on even a short portion of the scriptures, to pray. It's only when we make that space to listen to the Spirit that we find the freedom to receive the righteousness that he wants to work in us. So receive the Spirit, make time to listen to the Spirit. The second element that we see in this verse is faith. It says, through the Spirit, by faith, we wait eagerly for righteousness. And so this is believing in what Jesus Christ has done for us, not only in giving us his righteousness before God, if we accept and receive that gift, but also in completing that work of making us righteous. One of my favorite passages in Scripture is Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. And it's where we're told that Jesus has given us righteousness in order to present us holy and blameless before God. It's it's what I like to think of as a purpose statement from Jesus Christ for every one of us who follow after him. That one day he's going to present us 
righteous, holy, and blameless before God. He will give us that acceptable standing that we could never work for. It's his mission for us. And I take that to mean every situation, every circumstance of life is part of Jesus' mission of making us righteous before God. And so because of that, I want to invite you into freedom resolution number two. And that is to ask a different question about the circumstances of your life this year. There are going to be challenging circumstances in 2017, just like there were in 2016 and every year before that. But I want to invite you not to ask the question, how can I get out of my situation? whatever that situation is, and instead ask, God, what are you trying to teach me in this situation? It's viewing your life this year through the lens of faith, of believing that Jesus Christ is doing something purposeful, intentional, working righteousness in you if you are a follower of Jesus, and your job is to believe it and to listen to the Spirit. And to wait for that righteousness to be formed. Through the spirit, by faith, we wait for righteousness. And then there's the third element that shows up. We see it in verse 6. We see it again in verse 13. And it says this. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. But only faith working through love. In 13 it says, you were called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another for the whole law is fulfilled in one word you shall love your neighbor as yourself to live in the freedom that God has called us to is to learn what it means to love others in the way that he has loved us Whenever I do weddings, one of my favorite things that I say to a young bride and groom is that to have a happy and healthy and loving marriage, we've got to learn to empty ourselves in the way that Jesus emptied himself in order to have a relationship with us. Because when we're so full of ourselves, there's no room to love anybody else. So the freedom that we're offered is to get out of these questions Will God let me into heaven when I die? Will God be proud of me when I stand before him? Will somebody else be impressed with my life? These questions that keep us so self-absorbed that it's hard to find any space to love someone else. The freedom that we're called to live in is a freedom that thinks about others, that considers their needs more important than our own and helps us find ways to live in the love. And as we do that, as we love one another, as we serve others, the promise is that the righteousness we long for will be formed in us. It's not a righteousness we work for. It's a righteousness that happens through the Spirit, by faith, as we believe and as we love. So I want to invite you to join me in freedom resolution number three, and that is to look for opportunities this year to love others, to serve their needs, believing that as we do, that righteousness that we so long for, those questions that nag at our spirits, that righteousness will come in the way that we lean into the freedom that Jesus has accomplished for us. I'm going to pray that God would help us live in freedom in 2017. Would you bow with me? Father in heaven, thank you for the truth that it is for freedom, Christ has set us free. 
And I pray that you would help us resolve this year to make space to listen to the Spirit, to believe in your purpose for our lives and to love those around us. We ask for your strength in Jesus' name. Amen.